If you will open your Bibles to Acts 19.23. So about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Artemis, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motions for silence in order to make defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is a guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed or goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you. How's everyone doing today? That's good. Well, uh, I love what God is doing in your church. Uh, I have listened to you guys and I have seen beautiful pictures. You're even better in real life. So uh, thank you. You can sense the spirit, just the spirit of hunger and unity. Uh, so it's a joy to bring God's word to you. And uh, just a note, um, Evan and Sandy, thank you for your leadership pastoring this church. I hope you don't take it for granted what it's like to be under godly leadership. In our culture right now, Christian leaders are falling left and right. Things are coming out into the light. 
And I'm telling you, behind the scenes of this church, it's not perfect, but it has integrity and there's holiness there. And so I hope you support your leaders. I hope you pray for them. I hope you send them emails when you like it, not just when you're complaining. I hope that you pray for them and build them up. And uh, so I just wanna let you know you're in good hands here. I know you know it, but from someone looking on the outside, it's a joy to see the integrity of leadership here. I get invited to speak on this sort of mystic term, which is a courageous fidelity to orthodoxy. Yeah? How many of you like, I hope he speaks about a courageous fidelity to orthodoxy. <laughs> but we need to care about this. We need to care about the importance of staying true to the message of Jesus because what's happened in recent culture, you've probably felt this in your own life, is that our culture is, is giving us smaller and smaller amounts of space where we're allowed to publicly follow Jesus. They keep reducing the permissible areas with which our relationship with Jesus can, can impact our public lives. And so as a result, if we're not careful, we can't, as followers of Jesus, let the plausibility structures and permission of our culture dictate how much of the kingdom of God we are willing to live in at any time of history. And so we see that in larger issues, but you probably feel this personally. You probably feel this in the workplace. You probably feel HR uh, things coming into place. And, and ultimately the goal is this. You can believe whatever you want personally, you just can't live it publicly. And one of the challenges of being a follower of Jesus is that Jesus calls us to a public identification with our faith. So I wanna talk about how we need to be courageous in remaining true to the message of Jesus. And what I want to do is talk about uh, a, a passage of Scripture where you see the need for courage and you see a commitment to this sort of orthodoxy. And this is the Apostle Paul bringing the gospel to the city of Ephesus. Now, if you go back earlier into Acts chapter 19, you actually learn a lot about Paul's heart for church planting, the way that he sets up Christian communities. So in Acts chapter 19, he starts off by finding people who were like spiritually interested, but they didn't have all the information. And these were followers at the start of it, uh, Acts chapter 19 we read, they were baptized in the baptism of John, but they hadn't heard about Jesus and they weren't filled with the Holy Spirit. So Paul fills in their theology and then brings them into an encounter. So they're, they're interested, they're spiritual, they have some information, but they need the revelation of the new covenant and the power of the Holy Spirit. Praise them, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they prophesy. Then he goes to the place, which is interesting. He goes into the city and he finds the most receptive audience, which is the Jewish community. And he starts by reasoning with them about how what they believe is true but incomplete and about how Jesus completes the narrative of the Jewish community and that Jesus is the Messiah. And he does this for several months. Some people love it and other people hate it. And so instead of like getting, you know, like getting angry at the people rejecting him, he takes those who are interested and he starts a school of discipleship called the School of Tyrannus. And God does something extraordinary with these few disciples. It says that in a, in a couple of years, the entire region, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. So I want you to imagine just like a handful of people retreating meeting at an inconvenient time that God blesses their devotion so greatly that the whole of Southern California hears the good news about Jesus. Wouldn't that be an extraordinary move? 
And it's a great reminder that God always moves through the committed, not the lukewarm. And it's not about size, it's about potency. So it's about the seriousness of our devotion that ultimately yields the fruit of the kingdom of God. And then when that school, uh, the school of Tyrannus comes, God pours on them supernatural power to do the miraculous. And this is where Paul is like, it's, it's quite remarkable. When the Bible calls them extraordinary miracles, you know, it's like a miracle is an extraordinary. What is an extraordinary miracle? A miracle miracle. And this is when Paul's like so busy doing discipleship, people are like, look, someone's got a demon in their house. And he's like, look, just take this hanky and cast the demon out. Or someone's sick in my home. He's like, look, t- take my apron and put it on the sick person. Can you imagine showing up like, well, you know, Paul gave me this cloth, so in Jesus' name, come out of him, and it works. Can you imagine that, like that raw kingdom power that is floating around at this moment? And then people get so interested in the commodity of power, but not the relationship that produces it. Seven sons of Sceva, they reach out and they're like, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, they don't have authority. And as a result, they are beaten up and driven out naked. Now that's a bad day at church if you're leading that meeting. (laughs) Have to flee naked, beaten up. And so as a result, it says the fear of God descends on the entire region. And as the fear of God descends on the region, people just break into repentance. They start publicly burning their witchcraft items. And Jesus moves from just uh, an, an internal or theological reality in a tiny community to touching the whole city at large. And in Acts 19.20, we read this. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. What a phrase. The word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now, unfortunately, not everybody loves the word of the Lord and the increase in power. And so a conflict arises. Verse 23 says this. There arose a great conflict because of the way. There arose a great conflict. And so I want to say this too, wherever the gospel is preached faithfully, there will be conflict. Therefore, you will be required to have courage to declare it in contested space. That's what we see here in this passage. There arose a great conflict. The word conflict that's used here, or uproar, is the Greek word the robust, and it's the same word used of the crowd shouting at the crucifixion of Jesus. You know when they're shouting out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify The crowd's in an uproar and they're chanting out. That sort of dynamic was present here in this great disturbance about the way. And I think it is one of those things that whenever Jesus is preached properly, there will always be some sort of uproar in response. And if there's no uproar, people aren't hearing clearly what is being said. Because there's a clash of kingdoms, not just in the world of thought, but in the world of reality. The kingdom of God is not just ideas and it's not just devotion. It is about the kingdom of Jesus being manifest in all the human structures that make up society in our world today. Now, this clash was rooted because of an impact on the economy and the religion of the city in which they live. And it's led by a man named Demetrius. Now, Demetrius is a craftsman, and he is directly impacted by the preaching of the gospel because what he makes is no longer being sold to the same degree because of this public burning and this repentance. So verse 25 says this. He's now gathering around him a group of people, and he's saying this. If he is able to continue this, our trade will lose its good name. 
The prestige of the temple will be discredited and the goddess will be robbed of her divine majesty. So what he's talking about, just a little bit of the context, Paul is in the city of Ephesus and the city of Ephesus was dominated by the goddess Artemis in this huge temple. Her temple, like when you were coming into the city, it was way off in the skyline. It was actually one of the seven wonders of the world. It was constructed to replace a temple that was destroyed in 356 BC. It was massive. It was four times the size of the Parthenon. It had 127 columns, each of which was 60 feet high. The temp- inside the temple sat this image of Artemis. There should be a picture of both the temple and then Artemis up here. And she became the focal point. There were 33 shrines to Artemis spread throughout the Roman Empire. And she was possibly the most popular of all of the gods in the Greco-Roman pantheon at her time. People loved Artemis. And what they would do is they would do these pilgrimages to go visit the temple. And when they would go there, they would buy these little shrines, almost like little icons, little, uh, like, like a tourist almost, religious tourists. And they would take this and they would go into the temple and they would offer these, these, shri- these little objects up to Artemis and they would pray that her spirit would come and fill them and so that they could leave. And when they went back to their house and they put it up as a place of worship, the spirit of their God would be with them wherever they went. And so some pictures, these some historic uh, uh, artifacts that they found dug up from these. Now, people would come. There was like a month-long festival, okay, where people would come from all over the world like, a, like a, a month of just celebration of Artemis. So pilgrims would come from all over the region into the city and they've had this huge Artemis festival. Now, Demetrius at this particular time is beginning to, hey, it's festival time. You know what this means? It's A, party time and B, it's time we make the money. So people are gonna roll in. They're gonna be all excited. It's like Artemis is our girl. Here we come. Everybody rolls in. And then all of a sudden he's like, sales are down. And he's like, oh, I mean, there's, there's, the people are here, but where's the money? So he goes and checks with another artisan. Hey, mate, how's it going? Hey, how's, uh, how's business? He's like, I don't know what's going on, but sales are down. Really? Me too, okay. Goes, talks to a few more people, and they're like, is there, is there, is there a weather problem? Is there storms coming in? Is, there, is the Roman Empire put restrictions on travel? Like, why is our business going down? This is our best time of year. And then someone says, oh, I know what it is. You heard of Paul? Paul who? You Paul the apostle? Apostle of what? Of Jesus? What's Jesus got to do with any of this? Oh, he's got a little school of discipleship and they've been having these like manifestations of power and glory and all the rest of it. And they've been preaching about Jesus and they burned all this public witchcraft. And now people like aren't into artists as much. They're into Jesus or whatever. And so maybe that's affecting it. Does a little bit of research and he's like, oh, heck no. Not at festival time. Not at festival time. No way, Paul. And so he basically acts as a leader. He rises up and appeals to a crowded city full of zealots. These people are psychologically primed to respond to Artemis. And then he finds these men, fellow leaders, who are losing their income. You want to talk about a ripe audience for a message. And so what he says to them is this. He brings a charge. Verse 26, he says, You see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. And there's danger not only 
that our trade will lose its good name. Imagine this appealing to pride now. It's like, what you do is going to be seen as worthless. But also that the temple, which is the center of our economy and our religion and our identity and our industry, it's going to be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her majesty. You want to talk about like sprinkling a speech with triggers to activate a crowd. This is a case study. Now, I think that one of the things that's interesting is you see the impact. Paul's vision of the gospel is not private devotion. It is public kingdom. And they're trying to figure out what is happening in this moment. They're looking around. Hashtag no Artemis is trending in the region. They can't figure out who started this. Where is the decline located? They realize it's Paul and it's the message of Jesus. Now, what is so scandalous about what it is that he's preaching? Here's the first scandal that Paul brought. Number one, it's a kind of offensive exclusivity. An offensive exclusivity. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Now, the Romans at this particular moment, they didn't care what you believed as long as you didn't believe that what you believe was better than what anybody else believed. So as long as, as, long as you, you can believe whatever you want, just don't you dare say that anybody else is wrong or that yours is the only belief. And a part of this was not deep religious conviction. I mean, the Roman Empire had conquered entire regions that had their own local gods and their own local religions, and they just syncretized and incorporated them into the Roman Empire. And the only way they could do that was by maintaining this piece of sort of a positive inclusion. And anybody who threatened that, imagine if everybody in the Roman Empire said, you're wrong, our God's the right God, war would break out. So they had these strong measures, believe whatever you want, but you cannot say that anybody else is wrong. And so Christians actually, their first accusation was they were called atheists because they didn't believe in all the gods. For them, believing in one God was atheism. And so Christians experienced tremendous resistance because they would not honor all of the gods of the Roman Empire. And the Apostle Paul comes in and he's, he's got this claim and he's like, hey, I appreciate you guys. I appreciate like the temple's actually aesthetically pleasing. I can appreciate the craft and the handiwork and all the rest of it. I just got bad news for you. There's no God inside of it that's a real God. And they're like, oh, hang on now. It's an offensive exclusivity. Now, Paul is upset here not because he's got some sort of ego, not because he's like repressed in his belief, not because he's been brainwashed into a cult that doesn't appreciate traditions around the world. Paul's had a revelation of what is actually true and out of love for these people. He realized that worshiping other gods doesn't make us all equal. It actually leads to spiritual destruction. And if the gospel is true and it leads to life, and you don't have the gospel, it means that you are under the power of the evil one whose vision is to steal, kill, and destroy, and you will only experience God's disfavor, and you will also experience the kingdom of darkness. And so out of love, he is preaching to them this kind of exclusivity, but it's offensive to them. We read this in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. For Christ's love compels us. 
Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And in our culture, particularly a moment like this, when things feel so contested and Christians are losing their influence and secularism is on the rise and ideologies are creeping their way into everything, people normally react in one of two ways. Number one, people power up with the fear of God and they start preaching judgment only. Or people distort a part of the gospel by only highlighting the love of God. And one of these distorts the character of God and the other one reduces important attributes of God. And it is the fear of God plus the love of God that results in a biblical call to persuasion. And these were the guardrails of what the Apostle Paul had. And if we're not careful, if we, if we preach judgment, we will misrepresent the compassion of Jesus to the world. But if we just preach a God of love who basically showed up to high five you, to tell that you're fine and just keep going and He'll see you when you're dead, we have not preached the kingdom of Jesus or the person of Jesus. We've preached the person we want to be our life coach. Different gospel. So, certainty is offensive. Because it causes people to take sides. Certainty is offensive because it makes us have to make decisions. Certainty is offensive because it means some people are in and some people are out. And that just causes us like profound psychic trauma. There's a challenge in our culture of speaking about the certainty of Jesus. And a lot of times, can we just be honest? A lot of times we care more about what people think of us than we do about actually helping people. And so it's actually self-interest, not love for Jesus, that stops us declaring the whole gospel. Paul says this in Acts 20, talking about his time in Ephesus. He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And honestly, if I, if I can, in another translation says, I did not shrink back. And honestly, don't you, you have to have felt this. People start, they find out you're a Christian and they start leaning in on what it is that you actually believe. And you, you've probably even done this physically, like you take a step back, like, oh no, I mean, you know, it's shrinking back out of fear, fear of rejection, fear of doing image management for Jesus, like the gospel can't stand up on its own. And so we have to realize that what we preach contains an offensive exclusivity. Number two, we have to see that the gospel has a desire for cultural impact, not just private faith. That's what they say. This fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. And there's a danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. And I think this is also very important because if you allow the current culture to tell you how you can practice your faith, this is what it will allow you. Ready? In your home, in your bedroom, you can listen to whatever music you want and you can read whatever you want. But if you try and bring that into your workplace in any way, shape or form, you will be penalized. And so they've created, they have literally said, we allow the kingdom of Jesus to exist in your heart and in your home, but not in our society in any way, shape or form. 
And as a result of that, if we align with that and we go along with that, it's no use praying the prayer on earth as it is in heaven. Change your prayer to in my bedroom and in my home as it is in heaven, but not in the city as a whole. Because if Jesus' kingdom is an actual kingdom and His Lordship is an actual Lordship, He is gonna wanna be in the world establishing His rule and reign. And sometimes this can make people a little nervous. They're like, that's such a vision of colonization and proselytizing. Let me tell you something. Everybody is proselytizing. Big tech is building algorithms to manipulate your imagination, your attention span. That's proselytizing. Toy companies are employing child psychologists to create addictions with little kids around video games and toys. That's proselytizing. In fact, you may be at a moment because of your shame about the gospel, you're the only one not proselytizing. So what I wanna, what I wanna see here, what I want us to see here is it's not who, how could you proselytize? The question is, is your message true and is it good news? Because everybody is proselytizing. The spread of monotheism, whenever the Christians would set up, if you study church history, one of the things they would do, they would affect the economy. They would change the cultural structures of their days. They would impact the view of, of humanity wherever they went. The governor of Bithynia complained that through local Christian influence, temples and sacrifices were being neglected because people follow Jesus now. And I actually love that word. They just started neglecting all these godless practices. It's a public faith that you and I are called to. And, and I want this to settle in because I think the number one goal the enemy has is to get you excited about your private faith but ashamed of any sort of public faith. We are called to a public faith. Imagine saying, I'll give you a few, an example. Imagine saying to Rosa Parks in the middle of the civil rights uh, movement, hey, I'm so glad you've had a personal revelation that Jesus cares about the poor and he cares about justice. But just keep that in your bedroom and in your home. Just hold it in your heart with joy. And uh, don't push, don't change. Don't, don't, don't let what you believe about Jesus' teachings, about ethics and about justice and about life, don't let that be political. And at some point she had a revelation that the kingdom of Jesus brought about social change. And so one day she said, get to the back of the bus. She's like, no, no, I don't think I'm gonna do that. And you can imagine people say, oh, well, don't, don't cause a fuss. Don't create a stir, just rejoice in your heart. Go and abide in your freedom in your bedroom. At some point, you're gonna say, hey, if Jesus is Lord and he wants to set up a kingdom, he's gonna to have to tear down the kingdom of injustice. This is gonna manifest itself. The Montgomery bus boycotts ultimately succeeded because they touched the economy. And it's when they felt the pain in the wallet, they said, okay, I guess we will change now. But how insulting to Jesus and the people in need of deliverance to tell them, you can believe it, but only in your heart. And so our faith has to manifest itself in public form. David Osburger says this, Christian spirituality is not as popularly believed a matter of individual salvation, leading to a life of individual self-realization and pointing toward individual growth and perfection. It is not the private encounter of the soul with its own personal deity. It is the public encounter with the God who meets us in community. And that community living in the way of Jesus is called by Jesus to establish and seek first his kingdom in all of life. And this means Jesus has a vision for the arts. Jesus has a vision for the poor. 
Jesus has a vision for advertising. Jesus has a vision for economics. Jesus has a vision for all of life. And to the degree that you shut him out, you limit the good news and the life of the gospel transforming our culture. And so the gospel, when it hits the city of Ephesus, begins to poke and prod and change things. Now, the crowd, how does the crowd respond? So here's Alexander, here he is. Sorry, uh, Artemis has found his moment and he's like, here we go. It's touching me now. I've got to rally the people. The city's in a frenzy. The crowd just go off. This is like just having a bonfire covered in gas and in slow motion going and just throwing that match. Look at how the crowd responds. When they heard this, they were furious. And began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions to Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not know why they were there. So here's this theater, and I want you to imagine being in there and this crowd just chanting. You ever been in the middle of a protest right before it went violent? New York, like, let me tell you, man, when New Yorkers have a little protest, they burn stuff down. And uh, it is like, it's, it's intense. And I've been in a couple of protests, one right before it went violent, and you could feel the crowd turn. It went sort of from like just cause to sort of like violence so quickly. And it normally takes one person with a triggering event where some sort of spirit is released on the crowd. And there's a whole psychology. You can do research on how crowds work and, and the sociology of crowds. And this crowd was a crowd where that event had activated this sort of mentality in the midst of it. Everybody's in there screaming one thing after another. And there's, there's, this is a real moment of fear for Paul and his companions. Other people who had insulted people on the way to worship, 45 of them had been put to death in a public execution for doing something that seemed very, very similar to what Paul is being accused of in this moment. The gospel had caused a great disturbance. Now, the Jewish response in the crowd is fascinating. Here's what the Jewish community say. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front. They're like, oh my gosh, the crowd is like, we're, we're like, we believe a very similar thing here. Maybe we're gonna get thrown under the bus too. So they push Alexander to the front and they shouted, they shouted instructions to him. So he motions for silence. So you imagine that, like there's just a, you know, thousands of people. He's like, shh, and everyone's quiet. But as soon as they realized he was a Jew, they're like, Heck no! And they just go chanting at the top of their lungs again in unison for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And I think that there's something very instructive here for those of you who attempted to move to more, a more towards express, a, a, a progressive version of faith. And maybe you're like, like I, I feel like there's too much pressure here. Why do I have to hold to these archaic beliefs? Let me just adjust to what society is asking of me. But I think that temptation is that you think that there's something you can believe about Jesus that is not offensive. And I don't know how to tell you this. There is no progressive version of Jesus that is still unoffensive to the world. Unless you capitulate to every demand of modern society, the second you, you, 
you move one point away from it, you'll be thrown under the bus like you're a fundamentalist. They demand total allegiance to the cultural agenda. And this is what the Jews sort of had a realization. It was like, hey, we're not like those Christians, man. Those ones who believe in Jesus. We just believe in one God. Oh, wow, we actually believe the exact same things. And then as soon as they realize, hey, you are monotheist too. You don't believe in Artemis. They just shut them down for two hours. I think it's important to, if you think you're going to be faithful to Jesus by moving away from the historic Orthodox faith, you will have to move so far away and keep moving that what you will lose in your attempt to be faithful to Jesus, you will lose Jesus. And you may have the affirmation of the crowd and you may have acceptance, but what you'll have is secular humanism with a sprinkling of faith on top. What comes after that is just secular humanism. The Jewish response doesn't work. G.K. Chesterton says this, those who marry the spirit of the age will find themselves widows in the next. And it's true. And if you just go back, if you even just study like church history a little bit, say the last hundred years, one of the things you'll notice, particularly around sort of like the German liberal debates about classic doctrines, the sinfulness of humanity, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, the miracles in scripture. There was a whole movement, uh, particularly as science rose and the enlightenment was sort of peaking, People said, nobody believes the Bible. Look, anyone who believes the Bible, it's a fairy tale. Like, it's a great fairy tale. There's like some really moving parts in it. And, you know, there may be some like wise ethical things that we can sort of hang on to, but don't take it seriously. And so a whole generation, in fact, whole denomination said, okay, great, thank you. You freed us from this sort of like archaic, repressive religion. Now we can move on with the modern expression of our faith. But you study what's happened to all of those denominations who took that path, they're in radical decline. And I can tell you some of the dynamics we experience. You probably experienced this in your church, in your city. The city's filled with big buildings with progressive denominations that have no people in them. And the biggest problem evangelical churches have is that they cannot find buildings big enough to take the growth of new church plants. And it's a, it's a warning for us in our arrogance, not how could they, but we need to make sure we don't. Because if we move away from Jesus, we move away from the gospel, we will lose God's power and we too will climb into irrelevance. We have to acknowledge that what we believe is a scandal. The gospel's a scandal. The good news is it's offensive to everybody, not just one group. It's offensive to Christians. It's offensive to self-righteous people. It's offensive to everyone because it's not built on human performance. It's built on God's grace. So we need to realize that the culture will always penalize us into compliance and we have to stand firm. Tim Keller said this. I thought it was interesting. He said, in the Roman Empire, you Christians are too exclusive. You threaten the social order because you won't honor all deities. This was the claim. And he says, in the modern West, you Christians are too exclusive. You threaten the social order because you won't honor all identities. And he said, there'll be these areas where what we believe is offensive and exclusive. Now, the city clerk, so you, you get the scene. Imagine being in the middle of this, like trying to write this down. He's like Luke giving us an account of it. The city clerk stands up, okay? So here comes the the highest authorities we can see in this environment who are available to speak to the crowd. And he gets up and he wants to address the riot which has been started because Paul is preaching the good news of Jesus. And look at the response, verse 35. 
the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple and the great Artemis and in her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they've neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen has a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. And after he said this, he dismissed the assembly. So 10 years earlier, there'd been a similar riot around Artemis. And Rome had threatened them about removing some of their freedoms if they couldn't gather, gather and govern their own city. And cities had particular levels of autonomy under the Roman Empire. And the, the highest level was the ability to rule your own city. And so they were worried that they were going to have to ship in soldiers and the people were going to have to be oppressed again because these guys were in such an uproar. And he makes four claims here, which I think are interesting. So here's what you're going to see. Here's how the highest view of authority in the city understood how secure Artemis was, okay? Number one, the whole world knows about Artemis. Like Jesus who? Jesus who? Now Artemis, that's a God. The whole world knows about Artemis. Number two, these facts are undeniable. You guys are worried that Jesus, this dead Jewish Messiah from some tiny little podunk town in the middle of nowhere is gonna overturn this? Grow a brain and calm down. This is undeniable. Number three, this is fascinating. These men are innocent and they haven't blasphemed anyone or robbed our temples. So somehow Paul had managed to cause a riot without going Franklin Graham on people. Like I want you to take that in. He had caused a riot without unnecessary offence in the media. And then number four, some of you love Franklin, bless you, sorry, I'm a guest speaker. Number four, if this gets to Rome, we will lose favour. So we've handled this dispute inappropriately. And if it gets to Rome, we're going to lose favour. So just by a way of recap, he has framed the Christian reputation in the city. Okay? The highest leader has framed his understanding of the Christian reputation. Here's what he says. Number one, it's offensive. Number two, it's subversive. And it's effective, yet they have not done this in such a way where they are worthy of the accusations that you're bringing against them. When the hype and the rioting dies down and all the accusations fly, very little of it actually sticks because of how the Christians have lived their lives. He clears them of accusation they are clear in their articulation and they ultimately are compelling in their persuasion. One cultural commentator, uh, Bible commentator says this, the Ephesian believers did not lobby the city authorities, picket the silversmith shops or organize demonstrations against Artemis' worship. They did not try to be popular. They preached and lived out the message and let the power of their changed lives confront and push out the old ways. They let the power of their changed lives confront and push out the old ways. 
Again, maybe the reason the church is being thrown out of our culture is because it's lost its saltiness. And Jesus says when it's lost its saltiness, it'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot because it's good for nothing. So it's a reminder here that the call is to the potency of our lives, not our public power and trying to maintain it. It is our way of life that confronts and pushes out the old way of life. Now, I want to make this just like a, a touch more practical as we, as we wrap up here. Number one, we have to have a conviction of the power of the gospel. We've got to believe that it is subversive and it is potent. You have to believe that. The power of the word of God. If you preach the gospel faithfully, something will happen. The power is not in your presentation. It's not in your graphics. It's not in your rhetorical skills. The power is in the message of Jesus. And so it's amazing to me in our attempt to, to reframe the gospel, we often don't get Jesus in there. We talk all around the gospel, but we never get to the actual good news. And therefore we're, we're, we're robbing people of the direct encounter. And I can tell you so many stories. Let me ask you a question. How many of you became Christians in churches that you would never bring lost people to today? I became a Christian in a Pentecostal revival, tongue speaking, barking, slain in the spirit. I would never bring people to the youth group I became a Christian in today, except I became a Christian in that very thing. Don't limit what God can do. Don't think it's up to your preferences and your articulation. God can bring the Word in absolute power and you never know what's going on in the hearts of people behind the scenes. It's a subversive gospel. If you're not getting a reaction, you're not preaching the gospel, you're just being nice. If you're getting a reaction, it doesn't mean you're preaching the gospel, you could just be acting like a jerk. But if you are preaching the gospel, there will always be some kind of reaction because God has promised that he will build his church and that the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth. And I, I wanna give you some, some courage here because look, I know that we live in a moment where Christianity in the West just seems doomed. Like we're statistically at a point of irreversible decline. 70% of kids who grow up in the church, they walk away from it when they go to college. Over 40 million people are set to, to walk away from church in the next 30 years. It's very, very depressing. But don't let a vision of what's happening in America and Europe be your understanding of what God's doing on planet Earth. Right now, the gospel is growing faster right now than any point it has in all of human history. And two of the places it's growing the fastest, one is in Iran, the other one's in Cuba. Cuba's in revival right now. And in Iran, they are seeing Jesus is literally manifesting physically in meetings. Jesus is personally coming into people's homes and leading them to himself. The amount of revelation that's happening around the world right now. Don't think that Christianity is a white colonizing religion. The typical Christian on planet earth right now is a brown woman. The gospel is thriving and bringing life. And in fact, if you talk to people in Africa, you know what they say? Stop colonizing with your secular ideology and progressive Christianity, the purity of our faith. First you came for our resources. Now you're coming for our theology. Keep that in your part of the world. Yeah. So we've got to have a conviction that the gospel actually is growing. You just happen to be at a point right now where it's struggling a touch culturally. 
but it doesn't mean that it is limited in its power. That's good news. I have a slight clapping from people who get it. Number two, if this is true that the power is in the gospel, we need to ask God to give us boldness. We need to ask for boldness. Paul says, I did not shrink back. And one of the things to me that is most remarkable from this passage, Paul was so convinced at the power of the gospel that in the middle of the riot, it says they had to stop him, refrain him from going into the theater. And when his disciples can't do it, some of the powerful Christians in positions of authority in the Roman Empire had to send a message like, Paul, don't go in there. I think like, what is up with Paul? We kind of view Paul sort of like a C.S. Lewis, sort of like academic, probably a little pudgy, smoking a pipe, sitting back, thinking about lofty ideas. And yet Paul's like, there's a riot. Let me get this right. The entire city's in one shot and I can give him the gospel in one go. Everyone's like, get out of here. And Paul is like, let me in there. I love that spirit because he believed it could do something. He believed in the opportunity. And I I think that God is looking for people filled with that same sort of divine boldness. Now look, God may not be asking you to stand up at a, is it the Padres? God may not be asking you to stand up and do some sort of huge public thing, but there may be a controversy in your family, in your community, in your workplace, and every other Christian is running out and you need to be the people that run in. Let me in there. There's neighborhoods nobody wants to live. Christians need to say, let me in there. There's places that are neglected. Christians need to say, let me in there. There's places where everyone's like, don't plant a church there because it's completely secular. You need to be like, let me in there. The church needs that spirit of vision and faith that in the middle of the riot, we can prosper because we have the gospel. And then thirdly is we need to do this. The spirit in which we need to do this has to be one of respect and humility. You see, it's very easy to whip up Christians with fear and anxiety. It's easy to whip up Christians with like, the secularists are taking our country from us. You can raise so much money on that. But part of the problem is it develops. Have you ever been in a fight or in like someone's ever had a confrontation with you at the supermarket or someone's cutting in the parking lot or whatever it is? You, you, there's a thing called epinephrine. It's like literally a chemical released in your, like here. And it's like, you'd like, it's just like anyone's ever insulted your kids at the playground, mom? And you're like, mm-hmm, mama, you just, that thing that's in you. So it's easy to confront when you're angry. But can you confront from a place of grace? Can you bring a non-defensive spirit while you make exclusive claims? Can you tell people they're wrong without being arrogant? And can you make it about Jesus and not yourself? This is the need of the hour. Paul says in Colossians 4, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt that you may, how, may, you may know how to answer everyone. Peter says it like this, do this with gentleness and respect. And I, I feel like the American church needs to learn a lesson and it's this, screaming louder doesn't make it more true or more powerful. Jesus would just make short declarations and dead people would rise. Jesus' would, prayers were a lot shorter than ours. 
He would speak with what seemed to be a measured tone. Yes, there was moments when he got angry, but it wasn't his default state. And I want us to say the need of the hour is to walk into the fray with gentleness and kindness and humility. One of my mentors said it like this, John, I think you've got this wrong. You think the goal is for smart Christians to go into culture and prove everybody wrong in public debates and show everybody else while they're idiots and while they're dead in their sin. And he goes, no, here's what Jesus did. Jesus walked to the cross while the crowd attacked him, forgave them, turned the other cheek, and then let them crucify him. And that's how he conquered the world. I was like, uh, you're, I know you're right, but I really don't like that. And he said, no, the call is in humility to bear witness to the truth in a non-defensive spirit, even if they put you to death while you maintain it. Forgive and bless, and ultimately God will resurrect that for victory. We need a convicted civility. We don't need like adrenaline-fueled fear and protection. We need confident humility and grace in the hardest places there are. Folks, what we need in San Diego is a great disturbance. We need it. We need the gospel to disturb things in this city. It's got to disturb idolatry. It's got to disturb the enemy. It's got to disturb injustice. It's got to disturb oppression. It's got to disturb idolatry. It's got to disturb the city which is opposed to Jesus to save it from itself so it can find life. And I think that's why God's got you here now. And I think that that spirit is in this church and that's probably what drew you to it. You weren't just looking for a gathering in a, like a, a white restoration where hardware themed environment. Something underneath it in your spirit said, there's life here. There's a vision here. There's a humility here. There's a hunger here. And what God wants to do is to pour fire and power on that. And again, I, I want you to see this. Don't push this off into some meta claim. It's you causing a great disturbance where you, where you are. It's your college classroom. It's your neighborhood. It's the board meeting. It's the PTA group. It's when you're chatting with the people on the block. It's in everyday life. It's leaning in. It's bringing the beautiful, true, exclusive, offensive claims of Jesus. It's doing it in a spirit of humility. It's realizing that there's no moderate version the culture will accept. It's about being faithful. It's about being humble. And it's believing that Jesus will build his church. So I want to I want to close today, perhaps just by moving into a ministry time, because what would be terrible is if you heard this talk and then were like, yeah, yeah, and then left and did nothing. So here's how I want us to respond today. Like I realize, so maybe by way of response, can we all just stand? Would that be okay? And I just want to just want to lead this in through just. And can we have the, the prayer folks, if you're a group leader or a part of the prayer team, could you guys just pop onto the, to the side of the auditorium because I, I want people to be able to come and receive prayer. So the first thing I, I want to pray for here is at the start of the talk, I mentioned that there was people who understood part of the gospel, but not all of the gospel. They were disciples of John. And Paul shows up and he gives them the rest of the truth and he gives them power. And uh, if you're here today 
And it's just like, you've never fully understood the person of Jesus, who Jesus is. Like you've been around church your whole life, but you've never, you've probably got some theology, but you've never really understood that Jesus is the Lord of history and that he came to die on the cross for your sins. That he rose again and he came to fill you with the Holy Spirit so you could be his kingdom disciple. And you want to respond to that today. I want to encourage you to go up to one of these folks and just ask them to pray for you or just share your heart with them. And there's a lot of folks who grew up in church, but like they're sort of like inoculated against hearing the message. Maybe you're here sort of in that same category and you've been dabbling with your faith and you're like, oh my gosh, I think Jesus wants me to take this seriously. Like maybe I've, got a, I've had an area of rebellion or I've been sort of clowning around or I've just been like on cruise control and you're like, I, I think Jesus is calling me to be one of these disciples. I want to encourage you just to slip out right now and just to go and ask for prayer to respond to that. Maybe you're here and as I'm speaking, you're saying this, I would love that, but I am just crippled by a spirit of rejection. It's like, I just, like, you don't know what I've grown up with. You don't know the drama that was in my home. And I just literally cannot handle people rejecting me. So the idea of having people reject me because of Jesus, like, I just can't do it. Like, I need healing from a spirit of rejection. And the reason Jesus was able to receive so much rejection from the whole world is because he was so accepted in his inner being. He just knew he had the Father's embrace. He had the Father's love. He had the Father's affection. And so it's useless to talk about like stirring up a city if you can't even have a confrontation with people who love you because you need healing for rejection in your heart. And if you're here and you just like you just feel that, you feel like I've got rejection that needs to be healed and I want to be bold, but it's like the moment comes and I just turtle up and I just can't handle more rejection. I think God wants to, to bring a measure of healing for that today. So if that's you, we're going to go into a song in worship, so it won't be weird. But if that's you, just go and get prayer today. I believe that Jesus wants to meet you. I think he wants to bring healing in your heart. And I've got good news for you. Jesus' followers had a fear of rejection. Look at your boy, Peter. Peter was classic. Anybody could say, you were Jesus at the end of his, he's like, I don't even know who you're talking about. And yet Jesus in his love went and restored him and then filled him with the Holy Spirit and he had a spirit of boldness. And so don't be ashamed of that. It's probably not even your fault. But if you want healing and freedom from that, I want to encourage you to respond to that. Maybe you're here and um, you, need, you need power. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you get to work and you're like, oh, actually, nah, 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 nah. Next week, next week, I need another talk. Or different situation and you just need boldness. And maybe some of you are here and people at work don't even know you're a Christian. Like you're literally sneaking in church in this weekend. So how's the weekend? You're like, oh, so good. What'd you do? Just community and stuff. Friends. You know, it's so good. And maybe like this is the week where boldness starts by you going, oh, I went to church this Sunday. You ever been to church? You're from a faith background? It's super simple. Here's what it is. Ready? Tell people you're a Christian. Tell them how you became a Christian. Tell them why you became a Christian. Invite them to meet some of your wonderful Christian friends. Look at this room full of beautiful, wonderful people. Who doesn't want to meet these guys? Invite them to meet your friends and then, and then help introduce them to Jesus over the course of time. But it just starts by letting people know you're a follower of Jesus. And it's no good talking about revival if people don't even know you show up here on Sundays, you're associated with Jesus. 
Maybe your takeaway is you need to change your social media handle and just simply put follower of Jesus at the front of it. That's all you need to do and everyone will know. I remember having a conversation with Scott Harrison, the leads charity ward, and I said, how do you handle faith in work? He said, bro, my first thing on my social media profile says follower of Jesus. He said, I don't have to do anything else. Now the world just watches me to see if I believe it. And so maybe it's some small step that you need to put forward. Maybe you're here, and this is the last kind of person, and maybe you're just tired and you're just like, Man, I've been wrestling with faith. I've just been hanging on so long. I've got so many friends who are experiencing doubt or they're wrestling with God. And I'm just like, I don't quite know if it's worth it or not. And I just need a fresh touch from God. I just need God literally to show up and say, it's still worth it. And you just need a fresh encounter with the Holy Spirit. I get that. Pastoring in New York's hard. Whenever I'm in rooms like this, if I can get prayer, I'm like, I need prayer. You're the senior pastor. I'm the senior pastor who needs prayer. Who's going to lay hands? We need to encourage one another. The journey is hard. We can get discouraged. But I think God wants to empower you today. So if you're in any of those categories, you just sense like you're struggling with a spirit of rejection and you just want healing. These people love you. They're not here to create any shame in your life. They're not gonna look at you in a weird way. They just wanna see God give you freedom and healing. Maybe you're here and you just need power to break the fear of man, like it's just in you. Maybe you need to identify it today. Maybe it's an idol. Maybe it's your, your boss and you're worried if, like, if they know I go to church, it's going to cost my career. Can I just fill you in? Jesus is Lord. Your boss is not Lord. He has, at best, a temporary measure of influence over your life. You can quit anytime you want as well. Actually, with millennials and Gen Z, the power's in the employee, not the employer. The whole dynamics change. You got more agency than you know. You got God on your side. And so maybe this is a chance to bear witness. And that's why He's put you there. But whatever it is, let's just press in. We can't. The only disturbances created in the flesh are bad disturbances we have to apologize for later. But when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, these divine disturbances bring the kingdom, they bring justice, they bring life, they bring freedom, they bring reconciliation. They bring healing, and that requires power. So let's respond by asking the Holy Spirit to come and bring His power. So we're going to move into a time of worship, but I want to encourage you, if God's touched you, as I was saying that any of those things are in your heart and you sense the Spirit prompting you, why don't you come forward and receive prayer? And we're going to continue on with communion after that. So let's press in together.